so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, who's an associate professor of New Testament interpretation and the director of the Research Doctoral Studies Program at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Pennington holds a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's the author of numerous works, including The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, Reading the Gospels Wisely, and Heaven on Earth and the Gospel of Matthew. He's also on the preaching staff at Sojourn Church East in Louisville, Kentucky. On this episode, we talk about his latest book, Jesus the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life, and How Philosophy Connects to Our Everyday Lives. So let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Pennington, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. Today, we're going to focus on your new book that released last month. And often when we talk about Jesus, we use names like prophet, priest, king, and savior. But in your book, you help believers rediscover and kind of repurpose the idea that Jesus is the great philosopher. And I think when most people hear the term philosophy, they think of a class that they had to take in seminary or in college that was kind of boring and disconnected from life. But what does it mean when you argue that Jesus is the great philosopher, and how does that connect with our everyday life as believers? Yeah, that's such a great question. Well, I hope a philosophy class in seminary wasn't too boring. I guess that's a possibility, but for sure, probably in college for a lot of people, I realized that uh, that philosophy is, sounds very abstract and disconnected from life. And, and in the book, I talk about that a little bit. I remember my first philosophy class in college at a state university was just that, you know, it was uh, kind of random things. It felt very random to me about, you know, does a chair exist when we leave a room and how do we know that and all this kind of stuff. But it was only actually in the last uh, 10 or so years of my own research and writing and work that I discovered that that's not what philosophy was in the ancient world. Philosophy uh, was something so much more comprehensive and practical and meaningful. It was really how do you live well, that the great philosophers that you hear about, you know, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and later Seneca and others, they really were trying to help people learn to to view life in a certain way that would help you flourish or thrive. And so that's what I'm trying to do is just kind of help people rediscover this older sense of philosophy. And when you do, you realize that that's the world that that uh, Judaism and Christianity are living in as well, and that the Bible is really presenting 
uh, itself as a very thoughtful philosophy of life uh, and in Jesus as the greatest philosopher. Now, as you just said in your, in your little comments, he's more than that. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's God incarnate. But he's not less than that. He's also offering a true vision for how to live well according to God and, and his future kingdom. So that's what I'm trying to do is kind of rediscover that image of Jesus as a philosopher in that ancient sense. Yeah, I know early on in the book, you use a really great illustration of a chest of drawers. You kind of reference the idea of this kind of compartmentalized life where we treat Jesus as just part of the spiritual part of our life. And we often don't clearly see how Jesus really is the whole chest of drawers. Like he kind of, he speaks into every single area of our life. So how would you say that Jesus and the Bible and Christianity can become more than just a compartmentalized part of our life and really our entirety of the life? Yeah, that's right. That's a, another really good question. I think one of the things that I've come to see uh, over the years of teaching and thinking about the Bible is that it all depends on what questions we ask of the Bible. And if we only ask historical or like theological questions in the sense of like, you know, abstract ideas about God, and et cetera, which are certainly fine to ask about the Bible, we should ask those questions. And the Bible will answer them. But if we only ask those, we're missing part of what the Bible's trying to teach us. It's also teaching us, again, a, a vision of life, a way of being. And I often describe it as the difference between a vertical and a horizontal set of questions. Like we, we're accustomed to reading the Bible with this vertical set of like religious questions and theological questions. But we've often stopped asking the Bible questions at this horizontal level, like, how should we live in relationship with each other? What is true friendship like? Or what does it mean to truly be happy? And, and where do you find meaningfulness and work? And th those kind of really ancient philosophical or universal human questions. And, and so that's where that chest of drawers idea comes in, is that we've stopped asking a set of really important questions of the Bible, a set of questions the Bible's not afraid to answer, uh, because God, God created us, and he is giving Holy Scripture to us to, to shape us and to shape who we are as people and to teach us how to live. And so rather than just going to the Bible with the questions about religion and theology, we need to also go with the really practical questions of how do you live well in this life? And when we do, again, we'll discover the Bible has very thoughtful and wise answers. Yeah, and that's one thing I really appreciate about your book is that you help us to see that. And you do it so well through kind of Four main kind of areas are the ways that philosophy is typically broken down into metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. And for some listeners, those might be brand new concepts or brand new words. For others, those are kind of age-old kind of categories that we've been using. Can you give us a brief overview of those kind of areas of philosophy and how they relate to some of these big questions that you're posing us to ask of the Bible? Yeah, thanks. I, I uh, almost didn't use those words because because I really wanted the book to be very accessible and I think it is you know I think I think anyone could pick up and pick up the book and read it uh, with enjoyment but I I felt like I couldn't I couldn't not use those words because they're really helpful ones and so really briefly what they are and I explained this in the book as well metaphysics just means what is the nature of the world I mean how is it structured how is it put together how does it function um, epistemology is the question of how do you really know that? How do you know anything? How do you really know something truly? Uh, ethics is what is the good? Like what is the really good thing to pursue? What are the good things to pursue uh, in life? And how do you pursue them? 
And then politics, that's the word that's the weirdest sounding because that that uh, sounds to us like, you know, issues of political parties or something. But politics is a is a bigger category of relationships in society, like how should how should governments be structured? How should we relate to each other? How should the organizations we create function? And so those four big ideas are are really, really important for us to to live good lives. And again, the ancient philosophers talked a lot about each of those really explicitly and that they're all interconnected. So however you think the universe really is, is going to affect how you know things and especially how you live ethically, as well as how do you live in relationships politically. And so again, what I'm suggesting is that when we go back to the Bible that we love, when we go back to the Bible and ask those four kinds of questions. What's the nature of the universe? How do we know things? What's the good and how do we pursue it? How do we structure our relationships? We discover, maybe surprisingly, that again, the Bible is actually trafficking those ideas. It's very happily um, addressing those issues and not really even just this kind of side notes, but as really central to what it's offering to, to people. Um, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are offering a very sophisticated and thoughtful metaphysic, epistemology, ethic, and politic. And so, again, it's kind of, it's learning to ask another set of questions of the Bible that we've kind of lost asking that people, Christians used to ask all the time, um, but we've kind of lost it. And that's what I'm trying to help us rediscover. A few moments ago, you mentioned some of kind of the great philosophers, uh, Plato and Aristotle, Socrates. And who are some of these ancient philosophers and how does Jesus, the philosopher, engage in a lot of these questions that you're talking about, pursuing the good life and happiness? Yeah, well, um, the reason I mentioned the the great Greek philosophers, especially of kind of the starting with especially the, the Socratic style or the Socratic terms of Socrates, but especially Plato and Aristotle, they were, you know, there were lots of other philosophers before them and after, but those are kind of the big three in the ancient Greek philosophical tradition that really focus on, again, how to live a good life, especially Plato and Aristotle and how do you structure society and all that. Uh, and the reason they're particularly important, I think, is because by the time you get to Christianity, Judaism has already been deeply interacting with that Greek world for a few hundred years, because, you know, without getting too deep into history, um, but just to recall that the whole area of Israel and Palestine had been overrun by Alexander the Great, and then a series of people after him. And a, there was a big impact of that in that Judaism around the time of Jesus found itself again, deeply interacting with the Greek world that was very influential. And then by the time you get right into the first century of Jesus, that world has kind of been overtaken by the Roman Empire. And it too, the Roman Empire is a very philosophical world. So you get into the, so the Roman philosophers, especially the Stoics like Seneca, um, these people are all, their ideas and their writings and their habits are very much in the air of Judaism and Christianity by the time of the first century. And so I'm not suggesting that Jesus was like reading Aristotle and then, you know, responding to it or something, but, but everybody is a person of their own culture and time. And we're always interacting with what's in the air around us. 
And so, too, we know that what was in the air around Jesus in the first century were a lot of things, expectations for a Messiah, hopes for the kingdom of God to come. Obviously, the story of Israel was central. But another thing that was very much in the air were these questions of how do you live well? How do you truly know what's right? What is true happiness? And I'm suggesting that the New Testament is clearly answering these questions again. You think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and you mentioned, Jason, the, an earlier book I did called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. I unpack some of these ideas in there as well. But I suggest that there's no doubt that when Jesus opens his mouth at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and gives nine statements that we typically call the Beatitudes, those are they're technically they're what they're called are macarisms. Those are statements about true happiness. And so right in the very first sermon of Jesus, even though I don't, again, I don't think he's, you know, making a commentary on Aristotle per se, I do think he's offering something that would have made total sense to anybody living in the first century, that Jesus is offering a different answer to what it truly means to be really happy. So he starts with nine macarism statements. Now, what he says about what's happy uh, is pretty crazy from a perspective of most ancient philosophers. I mean, the things he says about embracing suffering and looking ahead to God's coming kingdom and these kind of things are, are not exactly what other philosophers would have answered, but he's answering the same kind of question that they were answering as well. Yeah, one of my favorite things about sitting under your teaching, which I could just sit here and listen to you teach on this um, all day long, is you come to a lot of these questions from a pastoral angle, but also an angle of biblical scholarship. I mean, you have your PhD in New Testament. You teach New Testament there at Southern Seminary. And you were one of my favorite professors at Southern. And now I have the privilege of being part of the doctoral programs that you helped lead. And some of my fondest memories are sitting in like your Sermon on the Mount class or your Matthew class, or your New Testament class, and hearing some so much of the background that goes into a lot of these questions and the debates. And so that's one of the things I really recommend this book to listeners is because you're coming at it from a biblical scholarship perspective. And so there's so much history uh, that's tied into a lot of the philosophical concepts. I know in the book you focus on, you have a chapter on kind of some of the big philosophical questions of the Old Testament and then also of the New. You spoke on a little bit of the New just a minute ago. What are some of the concepts in the Old Testament uh, that we see that is your big kind of philosophical questions that are being raised. Well, that's all very kind, Jason. I've loved having you as a student, and uh, it's great to connect with you again. Um, yeah, so I guess I just go back to those four big hooks I used before, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. And again, if you look at the Old Testament, it is clearly revealing that God cares about those issues. And, and maybe the, the metaphysics, you could start right from Genesis 1-1, right? Is that, that God has created the world, that the world's not uh, the child of two Egyptian gods that have had sexual relations and have spit out this, you know, this matter that we know or any other, a thousand other mythologies in the ancient world. And, and knowing doesn't come about by uh, slicing yourself with raider, razors and dancing around an altar or through some mysterious religious cult or something. Uh, and uh, the, the, what is the good is not just a function of trying to figure out what's best for society. And um, how do you structure society is not just something we make up through our own thoughts. That, that the Bible has answers to every one of those things. 
that God created the world and he created humans in a certain way and they're in his image and they're meant to relate to each other in certain ways. And that knowledge and wisdom is a function of knowing God. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge comes through revelation of God through himself, through the patriarchs and the prophets, and then finally in Jesus Christ. And ethics are clearly revealed that there is a Torah, there is a a law or a set of instructions that is based on who God himself is, and that's the only way to live that will promise shalom or flourishing. So so I think that's just a real quick answer to that, but that's the idea is that, again, if we start asking the right set of questions, we see, wow, the Bible is very thoughtful, and the Bible clearly has a a strong revelation of, of, of answer to all these absolutely foundational human questions. And and that's true about the Old and the New Testaments. Yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit um, to address one of the chapters that you focus on about emotions um, in your book, which I really appreciated you including. I know in certain kind of faith traditions or faith circles, there's a temptation to treat emotions as like a separate aspect of our life and really focus on kind of the intellectual side of faith or of Christianity, kind of leaning in on reason as opposed to emotions. And so emotions are downplayed or they're discouraged altogether when you're discussing some of these big philosophical ideas. What role do you see emotions playing in our lives, but also how does the Bible teach us about thinking through and kind of being emotional creatures? Well, wow, it's such a good question. You know, I um, those chapters were some of the most meaningful for me. And I have done a lot of teaching during the writing of those chapters and after uh, in a lot of churches and other situations. And your listeners may want to go to jonathanpennington.com. And if you go to uh, resources, you'll see there's several videos of me teaching at various churches throughout the country on this as well, some discussion in my own church and other churches as well, because this is just a huge issue. I mean, because emotions are a central part of what it means to be human. No one can deny that. I mean, you might you might have a philosophy that says emotions are bad, but you still are, which I don't, but you still have you still have to admit that you can't avoid them as a central part of what it means to be human. So they're all they're always a part of it. And so one of the things that was most interesting to me as I spent several years sort of preparing and and studying ancient philosophy was that emotions are actually one of the major topics in ancient philosophy. (laughs) That's so surprising, isn't it? Because again, when we think of modern philosophy, we think of very esoteric abstract ideas. But because ancient philosophers were so practical and cared so much about human flourishing, they talked a ton about emotions. And so whether it's Plato or Aristotle, or again, getting into the Stoics, especially, they talked a lot about what are emotions, what's the nature of humanity, and what part do emotions play in, in relationship to reason or rationality. And they all have different opinions. There's a big difference between what Plato says and what Aristotle says. And then the tradition that becomes dominant, I mean, completely dominant in the, by the time of the first century and before that, what's called Stoicism, though, all those people had very particular instructions for their disciples, for their followers, about how to think about emotions and how to manage them, or as I call in those chapters, educate them, how to educate emotions. And so what I do is that I, I explore in those chapters, I explore what 
were the various views that ancient people said about emotions. And then I kind of pulled those threads up into the modern period and talk about different views within neurology and psychology and therapy and others and show that really all the different views we have about emotions today are just kind of variations on those same debates that were going on in the ancient world. Just we have a little bit more technology now, That's but it's still basically the, the same ideas. And then I turned to the Bible and show that the Bible, again, has a very thoughtful view of emotions, that the Bible encourages us that to, to be human is to have emotions, and that that's not a bad thing, that Jesus himself had emotions, and that that's not a bad thing. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image, and that the, the heartbeat of the Bible, the biggest book right there uh, in the center of the Bible, or I guess not the longest book, but this book in the center of the Bible, the Psalter, is a book full of emotions, um, anger and lament and joy and sadness and confusion and love. And, and so we could go on and on and just encourage people to maybe pick up the book and read those chapters. But the point is that the Bible, again, encourages us that emotions are a normal and natural part of what it means to be human. They're not a bad thing. They're important windows. They educate us. And at the same time, there's something that we can learn to train and shape in certain godly ways over time through prayer and meditation and reflection and practice. And so it's a, I think it's a, again, a very nuanced or might even sophisticated view of emotions that the Bible has that I think are very practical as we try to live out our lives. You know, when I think of, I think of like just tumultuous times in our country with pandemics and elections and things like that. I mean, I, I'm aware in myself of a lot of emotions that get triggered. You know, I'm upset about this or that. And I've really learned from the things that I end up writing in this book that it's good to pay attention to that. And then I can learn through biblical teaching to educate and shape my emotions in certain ways that doesn't deny them, but also enables them to not completely control me. And that's something I've really learned from my own sort of research in this book. Yeah, this is something I really encourage listeners to grab a copy of. It's a really, really good book. And I know, Dr. Pennington, you wrote this book hoping that it would be really accessible. And I think you really accomplished that. It's deep. There's a lot there. And even on this podcast, we've only been able to barely scratch the surface of a lot of the concepts and uh, issues that you talk about. But as we close out our time today, outside of your book, what is another book or two that you might recommend to listeners who want to dig a little bit deeper into philosophy or ethics and kind of the nature of the good life and the pursuit of that? What are some of those helpful books, one or two, that you would recommend for listeners? Oh, boy. I always I always do such a bad job on book recommendations just because I think of a million things, but I can't think of anything at once. So, so on – the biblical ideas of knowing and how we know, so epistemology, I don't think you can do better than my good friend, Drew Johnson. That's D-R-U Johnson. Uh, scriptures Knowing, he actually has three or four books on this, uh, but Scriptures Knowing is probably the access, most accessible one. I know I made you read that in the class, Jason. I trust you, you remember that one. <laughs> um, that's a good one. There's others as well. Uh, also along those lines, another good friend of mine, Jeff Dryden, D-R-Y-D-E-N, Her Hermeneutic of Wisdom is a really good book on kind of how to read the Bible as wisdom, and that is as shaping us as people. Those are really good books as well. If somebody wants to study along the lines of what I'm saying about what ancient philosophy was, not from a Christian perspective, but just from a kind of historical perspective, the guy that really helped me was a, a famous French philosopher named 
Pierre Adot, which is H-A-D-O-T. He's got a couple of books that are in English that are really good. What is Ancient Philosophy is one of them that really shaped a lot of my thought. And he and he deals with Christianity in there, too, because Christianity is obviously, you know, interacting with philosophy in the ancient world. So those are those are a few that come to mind. I'm sure after we get off, I'll think of 10 more that I should have said. But <laughs> those are the ones that come to mind just now. As 2020 comes to a close, we at the ERLC are really thankful for the many ways that we get to assist churches by helping them to apply the gospel to the moral and ethical questions of the day, and also speaking from our churches as a witness in the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this here at the ERLC. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations that we receive apart from that go to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers, advocating for religious liberty and human dignity at home and across the globe. You can consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com slash donate. Well, Dr. Pinks, I want to thank you for joining us here on Weekly Tech this week. I'm really grateful for your work. Um, I'm really grateful for this book, and I really do encourage listeners to grab a copy of that. Uh, again, it's Jesus as the Great Philosopher. Uh, just really appreciate you taking the time to connect with us today. Total delight. I'm so honored to be with you. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you want to check out past episodes of Weekly Tech, you can subscribe to the podcast and check out the archive at jasonthacker.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and then also to help spread the word about Weekly Tech with others. Also, be sure to check out the show notes where you can connect with Dr. Pennington, learn more about his work, and also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. You can check that out at jasonthacker.com slash podcast.